Support for MindShift comes from Landmark College. Its annual Summer Institute for Educators takes place June 25th through 27th. Registration is now open at landmark.edu slash lcsi. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. I am in a social gathering or say on an airplane and the person next to me says so what do you do I say I teach I don't say I'm a doctor that's boring and they say oh teach what and they're you know thinking you know it's a college or is it high school and I go sex and they say um and they don't, they're not sure what the next question is and then, and then I say to kids And um, either that stimulates the conversation or it ends it. (laughs) That's Rob Lehman, also known as Dr. Rob. He's a pediatrician who's been teaching sex ed to kids for about 25 years. You're listening to Stories Teachers Share, a program from MindShift and KQED about what it's like to be a teacher and what we can learn from them. In our previous episode, you heard from Julie Metzger, the puberty lady, and what the girls and moms learn in their sex ed class. I think I was just kind of like shocked at how open and easy it was for Julie to talk about puberty. And she just made it so like fun and like it just made it more exciting and just easy to talk about. Today we hear from Dr. Rob, who's been teaching with Julie in Seattle. He teaches the boys and men's class, and Julie teaches the girls and women's class through their company, Great Conversations. Dr. Rob says, compared to the female class, the boys and men give off a really different energy. In the boys' class, when they enter the room, it's as if centrifugal force has moved them into the farthest away they can get from the front row. So, and they leave spaces between each other nice roomy spaces. Whereas in the girls' class, they crowded close together to the front so they could be close to the easels. So just physically, the the observation is that they're different. Although women may be a little bit more conversant with their daughters, the dads basically sit there or they're playing with their cell phones until the class starts. And you can feel a sort of a tension, which becomes obvious when I ask the first question about whose idea it was to be there. And unlike the girls' classes where moms are usually very confident when they go in there, they know why they're there and what they expect to hear, the dads were to some degree convinced or coerced to actually bring the son. And so they're nervous. The most physicality I ever saw at the end of a class, and this is again having seen the girls and moms become teary and holding each other on the way out of the class and there's this sort of feminine bonding that goes on in the class. And the guys, 
again, guys are acculturated not to do a lot of touching or hugging, and particularly in public. Um, and the most I ever saw was one dad gave a play punch to the, his son's arm saying, hey, how is that? Let's go get a burger. Uh, you know, <laughs> it was just so stereotypical guy stuff, you know, to have that sort of thing. So basically, the guys are silent, nervous, and unemotional. But that doesn't mean they're not paying attention to Dr. Rob. The most dramatic was the boy who threw up in the middle of the class. He was right in the middle of the auditorium. And he stands up looking a little odd. And I recognize this look <laughs> as a doctor. And he proceeds to throw up all, all around him. In stunned silence. And I said, because there was, only, there was only about 15 or 20 minutes left to the class, I said, well, maybe we should stop the class and end the class. And everybody said no, but at the same time, the, the parents and the boys just got up and walked away from that center section of the auditorium and moved to the sides of the auditorium. And they all crowded in <laughs> to the sides so they can remain there and be as far away from the throw-up area as possible. The sick boy and the dad left the, left the room. The guys don't like crowding in and being adjacent seats if they don't have to be. And so the fact that they were so uh, motivated to stay was heartwarming to me to see that they, they're getting a lot out of that as much as I am. That boy wasn't the only one to have thrown up in class. Both boys, uh, the dads came up later to me and said they were ill during the day. So I went, you know, it wasn't me that caused them to throw up. Although some boys are, are quite nervous about, um, and when they see pictures of particularly of reproductive system anatomy, they think that's weird. But so far, I don't think that's single-handedly caused a kid to throw up. You may be wondering, what's it like to be in Dr. Rob's class? I look for a dad willing to talk about the experience, and it wasn't easy. Here's one forthcoming father who would only provide his first name, David, so as not to embarrass his adolescent son. The most important thing, I think, for a 12-year-old is desensitizing so that the words can be spoken and the thoughts can be addressed, and it moves out of the realm of the odd, the weird, the non-normal, and becomes routine, comfortable. Um, and that's one of the things that they did a good job beyond the facts of the birds and the bees was just a, a, a nice, clean desensitization around saying the words. There was a moment in the first session where we all yelled penis, I think as loud as we could, and I forgot whether we did it three times or once, but it was interesting and the, the uh, instructor that night made a comment that it would be a little odd if someone were walking down the hallway as we were doing that, and we probably should have closed the door. David came to the class in a way that's typical of men. He came with his son because mom said so. She told him where to go and when to show up. David says prior to attending the class, the extent of conversations he's had with his son can be summed up in a single word. Minimal. Minimal, if anything. I'm someone who's really open, and I've invited my kids to talk about it without actually going as far as having the talk. So I would be hoping that they would ask me questions. I'd be hoping that they'd want to bring it up. And I've tried to find little ends, but haven't been too successful. And, and this was nice because it gave us that opportunity, 
and it was beautiful to see my son partake in normalcy with all the other boys the same age in the room with their dads and it was a place to just get that this is like okay to talk about. I'm curious, growing up, how did you learn about puberty? Um, wow, I didn't is the best answer I could give you. There was little, precious little discussion about sex at home. I had a brother who was a science nerd, so although he was older, he really wasn't dating. My parents were fairly Victorian in their thoughts, it seems, and even today I think that we go two different ways, but I didn't uh, have the access to talk about it, to ask questions about it. It wasn't comfortable to talk about it at home. I remember my mom gave me a book on venereal diseases, and I read that, and I remember I had uh, some, many of their friends were doctors, and I got a hold of whatever medical magazines I could get, trying to clean information and share wrong information with friends. And it was a slow, arduous learning process. As we heard in our previous episode about the girls' sex ed class, when the lesson's over, there's this opportunity for adult and child that opens up during the car ride home. It's that quiet, intimate space in the car where you can talk about something without the awkwardness of looking someone directly in the eye. It's the parent-child version of the road trip, except you just learned about B.O. and how to make babies. Here's how David describes the driving home moment with his son. Well, the ride home, interesting thing, I opened it up. The first thing I asked my son was, so how did you find that? And do you have any questions, anything you'd like to go further with? And it was like, it was okay and no. <laughs> and, um, you know, I guess in that moment, that's the best I could do is open up to him with my words and my body language and everything else that I'm really comfortable talking about this stuff. And uh, anytime he wants to open it up, I left him with that, that this is great stuff to talk about, and I'm there for it. As much as a parent opens himself up for conversation, it doesn't always mean the kid is ready. And just because David's son didn't have anything to say at that moment, it doesn't mean he won't in the future. Whether a parent knows it or not, a huge part of teaching is messaging, reminding your child to be safe, to know that he is loved, to come to you with questions. David lets his son know that he's open and comfortable talking about sex. He welcomes a conversation, and despite the lack of interaction from his son, some of it is getting through. David remembers one moment from class. I got to tell you, there was a joy in my heart when the doctor asked, so what are some of the reasons people have sex? And my son raised his hand, and he says, because it feels good. <laughs> and what a beautiful thing for him to say, because how true that is. And, you know, there's all the other things, procreation and all of that. But just to acknowledge, this is a basic component of being human. And it's okay to feel that. And I was proud of him for saying that. And uh, it felt good to hear his openness. There were some chuckles in the room. But at the end of the moment, it was absolutely true. And it felt good to see that he was having this, this place to open up to that. As for Dr. Rob, there aren't too many doctors who would also choose to educate kids who are going through major hormonal, emotional, physical, and cognitive changes during adolescence. As a teacher, he shares his knowledge with kids because he knows what it's like. He was one of those kids who learned about puberty from a book and from misinformed 13-year-olds at school. I became a pediatrician because I happen to love kids. And then I chose adolescent medicine because I just think 
that 10 to 20 year age range, which in fact most pediatricians shun. I mean, they want to get as far away from those kids as possible because they're behavioral challenges. Um, but I love them. I, I mean, I think that group is great because, um, yeah, they, I mean, I can still do the doctor thing and diagnose diseases and give them the treatments, but everything they do is affected by what they're thinking and their behaviors and their concerns about what other people are going to think. And I think teenagers get such a bad rap, and most of them want to have parents that are going to listen to them. Most of them want to avoid the worst risks, but they also are, have very strong behavioral pressures to be included, be like the others. And I see that struggle. And, and it, it's fascinating how it affects their health behaviors. Coming up after the break, we'll hear how Dr. Rob answers questions from adolescent boys. It will not make you blind. It will not grow hair on your palms and it won't make your penis fall off. Stay with us. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. Hi there. I'm Randa Dirfetah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. Welcome back to Stories Teacher Share from MindShift and KQED. You may recall that a key part of Dr. Rob and Julie Metzger's success teaching sex ed is that they model behavior for adults. Sure, the kids are learning something new, but both teachers say giving parents the skills to answer child's questions about sex and puberty and demonstrating how an adult can be that authority is central to a healthy relationship. That relationship is often what's missing from a lot of sex ed programs in schools. Dr. Rob gives parents the space and the tools to be the primary sex educator of their child. And I, several times during both sessions, will say, you need to take this on, you need to take that conversation when we get to masturbation, when we get to sexual orientation, when we get to sexual intercourse outside of marriage. All the hot button things. I say, I only have a minute to talk about this, given all the things we have to talk about. But this is where you have to take it. And I'm making it easy for you dads, particularly when it's just dads. I'll say, and this is what I said last night after I talked about masturbation. I said, all of us come from belief systems. You now have to take that conversation about masturbation and continue it 
And I, I know it's the hardest conversation parents would ever have to have with their boys. However, I just made it easy for you. What you could say is, remember what Dr. Rob said in the class about that masturbation thing? This is what my family believes. Or this is what I learned from grandma and grandpa when I was your age. And just take the conversation that way. Just as an example, for parents or for uh, people who might be thinking about this, how do you talk about masturbation in your class? Knowing that I have about two minutes on any particular topic, given the number of topics I want to at least hit on, I determine some topics are essential. Uh, I can't wait for a question on, and masturbation is one of them. Sort of like the big silent conspiracy. What I want to do is I want to present facts. I want to dispel myths and just get it out there that I've used the word. There's an order to things, so I will have talked about anatomy and then I get to the sperm and semen and I talk about ejaculation, talk about erections. So I've just finished all that. The next thing would be the sort of natural thing, which would be wet dreams, which is having ejaculation while you sleep. And talk about that. That's one step harder for them to, to talk about, but it's you know physiologic. There's no behavior involved there. But I also say it's normal. I, I've said that a billion times. This is normal. That's okay. All the, this is expected. And your parents know about this. And then I go, okay, that's when you're asleep. Now let's talk about when you're awake. So a guy touches his penis, and it goes from that shape to an erection. We just talked about that. Okay, and he touches it some more. And he touches it a whole lot more. He touches it so much that it actually brings the sperm up the vas into the semen and comes shooting out the end of his penis. But now he's awake. Do you think he'd notice? Minor laughter, nods of the head by the dads. I said, you bet he's going to notice. And then I put the dads a little bit on the spot, and I say, okay, come on, dads. Let's hear it. What does it feel like? Explain the feeling to boys who have never experienced something. I'll hear um, uh, great, ecstasy, release, relief. Um, and I kind of make a joke and I say, oh, I realize a lot of you have never experienced this before. And they laugh. And I, you know, I'm, getting, I'm pushing their buttons a little bit at a subject that's been you know, verboten to talk about in public. I say, well, let me tell you some facts. Okay? The first is that this is called masturbation. I write the word on the board of the easel. And I say, this is an amazingly powerful word. Amazing. It's so powerful that the head doctor of the United States, the Surgeon General, a long, long time ago, in the 1990s, said this word in public and was fired as a result. In regard to masturbation, I think that that is something that uh, it, it's a part of human sexuality, and it is a part of something that perhaps should be taught. And then I add that that happened to be the Clinton administration, which gets kind of a, an ironic laugh from the parents. And I say, that's because a lot of people 
are really afraid of this word. And then I say, well, let's give you some facts, undeniable facts. Most guys do it. Is this something a guy has to do or chooses to do? Chooses to do, but most guys choose to. It will not make you blind. It will not grow hair on your palms, and it won't make your penis fall off. If I look at a boy on the street, I can't tell that he's ever masturbated. Now, if it feels good, which we just heard the dad say, why not do it 10,000 times a day? Well, now they're more relaxed, the dads, and they will start laughing a little bit more, and one will inevitably say, well, you have to get to work at some point. And so it becomes a little bit more fun because we've, we've broken the ice. We've, we've said the word. We've talked about what it is. And so far, I haven't gotten into any moralization or judgment on the thing. I'm just saying it's a fact. It happens, and they can choose, okay? And I say, well, I've got three reasons why you can't. One is that you can't do it 10,000 times a day. It's just impossible physically. Number two is there are a lot things you guys got to get done during the day. You got to go to school, you got to sleep, do your homework, play video games, eat, play games, hang out with your family. And a guy who's spending all day masturbating is not getting a whole lot of important things done. But the most important is that some families, some faiths, some communities, some cultures have learned lots of stuff about this. And you need to find out what your family has learned about this. Okay, and that's where I'm sort of tossing it back in, into their laps. I'm not going either way. I'm not saying masturbation is normal. We all do it. You should do it. <laughs> Nor am I saying some people think it's wrong, so you shouldn't do it. I'm letting them, I, I want them to hear their parents' belief system. I want them to hear their parents' values, and I want to hear what grandma and grandpa may have said about the subject, because that's where dad's coming from. But at the same time, I wanted him to hear the facts. Most guys do it. I tell them it's like sex by yourself, that guys do it a lot when they're sort of first learning, and then they can choose to do it as much or as little or not at all for the rest of their life if they don't want to. End. Done. That's the end. And then I move on to circumcision. <laughs> now it's a four-hour class, so for everything Dr. Rob can't cover, Dad has to pick up. Dad's ultimately the guy who's going to have to answer those questions. I go back to them and I, I talk to them a little bit about where do you get information when you have more questions. I'm not going to be there after you leave this room. So there's that person next to you who I build up as these guys are pros. They are, they are so knowledgeable. They have dated before. They've learned a whole bunch of stuff. And they have a lot of information that could really help you avoid a lot of mistakes. And so I build them up. And I also say there are good places on the Internet. And there are not good places on the Internet to look this sort of stuff up. And that grown-up next to you is going to help you figure out what good places on the Internet might be also to get the answers. What kind of answers might kids be searching for? In his class, Dr. Rob has the kids write questions anonymously on index cards. He reads each one out loud. Okay. How many times do you usually have to have sex before a baby comes? How long does sex take? What is masturbation exactly? 
how old should you be to grow up? I said, well, that's kind of an existential question. I don't know how to answer that, but I answered them all. How do you know when sex will make a baby? Um, how do you ask a girl out? Um, I love this one. How, when you have sex, how did the sperm get out? Can you accidentally pee? And I could tell you that is a deep down fear that a lot of boys have because they know both things come out that same hole and they don't know that they have control over one or the other and that would be the, the fatal mistake to pee inside a woman's vagina. Okay, <laughs> how do you put your thingy in the thingy? Okay, now I've just gone over the words. I've said vagina and penis a million times and he still has trouble and this just shows how much society, I mean, these boys already arrive with all their hang-ups and societal affectations about sexuality, and it's still there, obviously. Um, how long will puberty last? Oh, I get lots of doodles. Sometimes the doodles are relevant. They're very interesting. And this one, I, I don't know, he, uh, one's a picture of a turtle entitled The Troubled Turtle. Then the next one is uh, the kindly kangaroo, and it has a kangaroo head. And then it has hobo the human. Now, a psychologist could probably make some use out of that, but I have no idea what that is. And then he asks the bizarre question, do you like toast? I know that some of the instructors we have will toss these. We'll just not answer them because it's a, sort of irrelevant uh, or sometimes maybe a joke. But I purposely answer everything because I want to model to the parents. What do you do when a question comes out of this kid out of nowhere? So I said, yes, went to the next card. How many zits on average does a boy get? Um, what does the first feel like when you see it? Anybody's guess what that means. This one I love because we get this question in every girl's class multiple times not in every boy's class. Does sex hurt? So I've already talked about forced sex as just part of the regular conversation. But here I give an analogy. And the analogies I give for things like this and for things like what does gay mean are in terms of what I think a 10 to 12-year-old boy would actually understand. It's got to be somewhat concrete. So I take a boy in the front row and I say, um, I'm going to shake this boy's hand. And I shake his hand in the usual way. And then I say, I'm now going to shake this boy's hand again. And this time I shake with as much force as I possibly can. And the boy will usually say, ow, or withdraw his hand. And I make the point and I say, huh, I can tell my buddy that I just shook this boy's hand twice. And it sounds like a, the same thing, but in fact, it wasn't the same, same thing. The first time I did it with consideration, I did it the way guys are supposed to do it. Second time I was doing it mean and not thinking that this would actually hurt him. And then I asked the boy, what, what should you do if someone's shaking your hand too hard? And he says, well, I pull my hand out, or I say, ouch, or I say, stop it. I say, yes. That's what we teach people when they're having sex and it's hurting. Done. Does it feel weird to put your penis in a girl's vagina? Uh, what situation would you look for to, to ask to marry someone? Is it normal to sweat? Um, is it normal to smell for a couple months and then have the smell go away? Um, how do I know for sure that me and my body is normal? Um, can butt sex get a girl pregnant? 10 to 12 years old. So one good reason to read questions like that 
and not temper it, because it could be shocking for some, is I want to pull the rug out from the parent misconception that these are innocents. Innocent in the sense of they've never heard any of this. They come to sexuality as a completely blank slate. I want them to know the social media is there. The world of pornography is in their back pocket. And that they're going to hear all this stuff. But it's for us, we adults, to explain it so that they understand what all this stuff is. My mind is blown. <laughs> See, this is why it's so fun to get in this conversation on, on an airplane when someone asks me, asks me the question. Julie and I just laugh about that. We just said we have such a great gig being able to talk about this stuff. And that's it for Q&A. Thank you for listening to Stories, Questions, and Answers, Teachers Share, a production of MindShift and KQED. Our team includes Katrina Schwartz, Jacob Conrad, and Seth Samuel. Special thanks to Dr. Rob Lehman, Julie Metzger, David, and all the grown-ups out there who answer our questions. Do you have a story about teaching you would like to share? There are two ways to reach us. Write us at mindshiftstories at kqed.org or record your voice and send that file to us. We'd love to share your stories about teaching in an upcoming episode. To make sure you don't miss that upcoming episode, subscribe. And if you have a moment, please go to iTunes and write a review. It helps other podcast lovers find our teachers' stories. Thank you for listening. Coming up next in our podcast, a high school basketball coach makes a lasting impression. Whenever somebody wasn't practicing well, he always tells us to go home and watch Oprah. Those are kind of the things that I remember whenever I'm tiddling around and not doing something. I always tell myself either I'm going to work or I'm going to go home and watch Oprah. Get up and join us for Stories Teachers Share. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. 
Thank you for listening and thank you for your support.